the strongest memory I have that I think it will stay with me for ages. Um, it was the refugees that they were trying to seek shelter in Kabul. Mm. We were quite worried about the war entering to Kabul because we were thinking the war in Kabul will be more brutal than the provinces. So when I was seeing my fellow Afghans leaving behind their lives that they, you know, spend their lifetime building yeah. and just carrying their clothes in their backs, that was um, sad for me. And it was um, really uh, a moment of that day which I cannot forget easily. For three days, I was out talking with refugees. But that day specifically, when I was seeing the trucks full of items coming to the Kabul, it made me cry. And it reminded me the Civil War of 90s. It reminded me my childhood. Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Al-Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. In The Lead this week, we return to Afghanistan for the third time on this podcast, as the country prepares to mark one year under the Taliban's Islamic Emirate 2.0. The group had previously ruled the country in the 1990s, but were overthrown after the US invasion in 2003. The Americans were never able to root out their insurgency, however. It became a protracted and bloody war, which lasted for two decades without any sign of being resolved. When Joe Biden announced in April 2021 that the US would withdraw its troops, many doubted that the US-backed republic could hold the Taliban off on their own. But even those sceptical observers were shocked at how quickly the republic's army lost territory. On August 15, 2021, the world watched as Kabul, Afghanistan's capital city, fell within a single day. After 20 years of fighting, the Taliban had won. For Americans, the events of August 2021 marked a watershed moment in their country's history, the end of the US's longest war. For Afghans, they marked a new beginning. But the beginning of what, exactly, remained unclear. Many hoped that the Taliban were the only faction strong enough to finally be able to put an end to the violence that had taken so many lives over so many years of war. Others feared mass purges, widespread political violence, and a return to the oppressive and misogynistic Taliban regime of the 1990s. Many chose to flee the country rather than stay to find out if their predictions were correct. As the dust of the war settled and the Taliban began the business of governing, international media gradually began to focus their attention elsewhere. But the past year has not been any less eventful for the people of Afghanistan. The country's economy collapsed under the weight of American sanctions, plunging millions of Afghans into extreme poverty and hunger. The winter brought unusually frigid temperatures at a time when most Afghans couldn't afford fuel. They have also had to contend with drought and a devastating earthquake in the country's east. In March, the long-awaited reopening of girls' schools was cancelled at the last minute, reflecting the continuous erosion of women's rights under Taliban rule. In the midst of it all, the country's Islamic State affiliate has continued their terrorist campaign in the hopes of plunging the country back into civil war. And just last week, a US drone strike in Kabul killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, who appeared to have been hosted by the Taliban despite assurances that they would sever their alliance with the group. For this episode, looking back on the first year under the Taliban, I spoke to Nazila Jamshidi, a gender equality and human rights specialist from Afghanistan who is currently based in the United States. You'll also hear from my colleague Rasha Elaz, who spoke with Chris Sands, our South Asia editor, about New Lines' investigation into Islamic State Khorasan province. 
But first, I wanted to know more about the situation on the ground. And so I began by speaking to our Afghanistan correspondent, Fazal Minallah Ghazizai, who has conscientiously reported on the past year's events in the magazine's Letter from Kabul newsletter. He spoke to me from his home in Kabul, though we struggled to get a good signal throughout our conversation. Hello? You, you have me now? You're back, you're back. Did you hear my question? No, please, uh, repeat yourself. Ah, okay, sure. It's been a year now since the Taliban takeover. Thinking back to the, the first few days of Taliban rule, what did you think this past year would be like back then? Like, what were your hopes and fears for the future at that time? At that time, I was thinking that there will be a very long and deadly civil war between different factions and between different ethnicity groups and between different political parties. I was thinking that um, Americans will stay longer and they will support some of the uh, political groups and armed militia men in Kabul. And Kabul will be the second Lashkarga. You know Lashkarga is the capital of Helmand. And a young general was in power there and he tried to resist against the Taliban because he had some air support from the U.S. And then in 15 days, in two weeks, he turned Lashkarga to Hashish. He turned all Lashkarga to a um, second Halipol or to, to a second Raqqa. So I was thinking that the same thing will happen here in, in Kabul. But when the Kabul collapsed in a surprising way, it, it made me happy. And, you know, it made me... Uh, it, it, Give me a relief. It, it, it was like a relief to, to me, to my family and to my fellow Afghans who were living nearby. When we last spoke to you on the podcast in January, uh, Afghanistan was in the grip of a humanitarian crisis that threatened to take more lives even than the war had. Um, particularly in the, the country's rural areas, there were food and fuel shortages. Many people were unable to heat their homes over the winter, as we talked about. Uh, there were a lot of people who were very hungry. At the time, you traveled to Logar province to report on the situation, and you said that you'd never seen anything like it in Afghanistan, even during the worst days of the war. Yeah. Has, have you, I mean, have you, is your understanding that things have become better since? For big cities, the situation is better now. Yeah. But for the remote areas, the situation got worse. They are still, you know, suffering from the drought. They are still suffering from unemployment. They are still suffering from the high price of food items, you know, from petrol, from gas and other necessity items. I think the policies of Western countries towards the Taliban new government is really uh, damaging. All the damage of the sanctions came directly to the local people. As a journalist, um, since the sanctions were imposed on Afghanistan, I couldn't earn my own salary, my own payment of work till now, which is totally unfair. <laughs> so the sanctions um, really uh, damage it and weaken it, Afghan economic and Afghan people. Plus, the Ukraine war. I think the price of petrol, which is high, the price of wheat and flour, which is high, it's all because of the Ukraine invasion. So at January, I think it was only sanctions which we were suffering now. It's sanction plus um, Ukraine invasion. Many people have criticized those sanctions for being both cruel and ineffective. 
since you're on the ground in Afghanistan, you're there in Kabul, I'm interested to know what you think. Have the sanctions weakened the Taliban's position, would you say? Or has the suffering that they've caused actually strengthened their support among Afghan people? Uh, I don't think that the sanctions, you know, damage it or weaken it, the Taliban. The Taliban were um, getting stronger every day of this year. They, you know, provided uniforms for the police. They provided uniforms for the intelligence. They provided uniforms for the Ministry of Defense. You know, they have now brigades. They have divisions. They have conducts. They have like, military corps that they didn't have before. Even they, they are um, air force, ground transportation, everything of their system and government is much stronger than it was in the early months. We, we do need to talk about the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri um, just last week by an American drone. Um, his presence in Afghanistan with the apparent the knowledge and maybe the consent of the Taliban is quite a big deal. Um, I wonder what you think the, well, I wonder what you, the reaction has been inside the country and then what you think uh, might happen next in terms of recognition and uh, yes, we had uh, reports of drone um, in the skies of southern Afghanistan and the skies of eastern Afghanistan. And also we have rumors that the drones were flying over the skies of Kabul. But um, the attack which um, happened on the compound where it was supposed to be the house of Emmanuel Zawahiri, um, it, it surprised everyone. And also... It surprised them with um, a bad news for Afghan. So everyone in Kabul and in, 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 in other provinces of the country just realized that the war with the America is not ended. All the war machines that the American brought after 9-11 to this region, to Afghanistan, is still on its positions and it's not stopped as, as we were thinking. Also, it uh, brought more problems, more distraction. So now people will not be allowed to post for photos in, 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 in any part of the city they want. Now people will be not allowed to park their vehicles in any sensitive area or VIP places. Now people will be, you know, under more restriction, a lot of more limitation will come on journalists. You told me back when we spoke this time last year, uh, that you and many Afghans were optimistic about the Taliban's victory because you thought it would at least keep the peace. Yeah. Um, and that has happened to some degree. I mean, there is much less violence today than there had been before. Yeah. Um, but between, as you're saying, the resurgent American drone strikes and the threat of the Islamic State, how concerned are you that the situation may deteriorate once again? Um, I am worried. I think guys keep it is you know um, there are taxes in 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 a raising mode. Just in last Ashura we have um, and and for this we have every day one explosion, and the explosion forced the Taliban to ban communication system, mobile services and internet services all over Kabul for more than 24 hours, which is a very big warning to Afghans, which is a very big warning to me. Plus the drone attacks, which are not happening only by American forces, 
We had drone attacks uh, and drone surveillance from Pakistan. And we have reports that the Taliban shot down a surveillance drone in host province. So all these incidents and all these attacks giving us a strong warning for a harsh future. Um, not only by mm. U.S. drones, but by Pakistani drones and by the, the, the threat ISKPs posing to Afghanistan. That was Fazl Minallah Qazizai speaking from Kabul. Fazl Minallah was in Kabul as it fell, but Afghans in the diaspora also watched in horror as the Taliban overran in mere hours the capital city. Many frantically tried to follow the news to understand what might happen to friends and loved ones. My next guest is Nazila Jamshidi, a gender equality and human rights specialist from Afghanistan who is currently based in the United States. I spoke to her from her office in New York and started by asking her what it was like a year ago to watch the Afghan government collapse, even as life around her in America continued as normal. Fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban is the most pathetic event in my life that I will never forget. Uh, to, to me, Afghanistan actually collapsed on August 12th when my home city, Herat, fell. A mm. city that once embraced me like a kind mother and gave me every reason to work, to live and aspire, uh, now was no longer the place I have known. When parts of Herat ultimately fell, my heart began to plunge into fear fear of losing my homeland, my people, and all the progress we have made. And there was a huge, huge horror among the entire Afghan community in the DC area. So before Herat completely felt, uh, quite frankly, I had more hope in the pro-government fighters in Herat, led by the former Mujahideen leader, Ismail Khan, than the national security forces. And I was hearing that national security forces not fighting or being commanded not to fight. While a local fighter uh, who had every resolve to fight and a competent command structure were defending their city. And I was saying that a localized military unit model is more effective to keep the Taliban at bay, especially in the areas neglected by the national forces. Hmm. Harat fell a few days, two to three days before Kabul fell. So did that mean that you sort of saw what was going to happen? Well, to me, and it was an end. I, I, was, I was seeing collapse of the entire the country. And I remember during the day, uh, last August, I was engaged in lots of activism and advocacy programs and warning about the collapse and the begging to the world leader to do something and repeatedly saying that the risk of failing to act may be to the, lose the entire country and failing a population who relied on our words and promises for two decades. And over the night in my time, when it was daytime in Afghanistan, I was reading the news mostly posted by uh, Herat Times, which was a telegram channel that would share the most updated and moment by moment news and other local news, of course. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't stop thinking about what was happening in the country. Still one year after the collapse, I struggled to accept the progress that was made through the contribution of many people, people of my generation, 
women and men of that country and people, even people who came to help, came crashing down so quickly, so fast, just in a matter of weeks. And I still, I mean, still I start my day by reading stories about new atrocities, new waves of women fleeing the country and new signs of despair. And I cannot stop thinking about all those journalists, thought leaders, business owners, and professors who are forced to flee their country and now are either in the refugee camp or living in exile with an uncertain future. You sound like you still can't quite believe that all of the progress, for example, in Herat just crumbled. Not really. That's not how we were told. That's not how we have taught. Perhaps to the board last summer marked the end of 20 years of the United States war in Afghanistan, something they branded it as a forever war. And we're so proud of uh, ending it last summer, but to me and to my fellow Afghan women, it marked the end of the 20 years of progress toward human rights and freedom. And the image of those desperate Afghan clinging to the side of a moving military plane and yeah. the chaotic scenes of the, at the uh, Kabul airport are unforgettable moments for me and particularly for those Afghan who were there and saw those scenes not through the video or photo like me, but in front of their eyes as they were desperately waiting for a rescuing plane to help them. So yeah. no, I cannot, I, 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 I do remember everything, every bit painfully, very clearly. I mean, that's a, a feeling that I think a lot of Afghans will be familiar with and increasing so, because I think people forget just how many Afghans have fled over the past few years and then after the Taliban took over. And so it's important, of course, people talk about the humanitarian situation on the ground, and that is important, but it's also crucial to draw attention to the challenges being faced by those outside who have now had to rebuild their lives. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, to me, the West has has left women and other Afghan Afghans without any clear and firm plan, plan to maintain what they have built. They led the, the Taliban systematically target women's rights, curtailing women's role in the public space, dignity, education, work, and future aspiration. Now, I think instead of disengaging politically and diplomatically, I think the international community should concentrate on action that can lead to a tangible improvement in women's rights and security. And also for the for those who are coming to, to the country or who have been evacuated or had the chance to be evacuated. I mean, I see them, I see majority of women who come here have to start everything from scratch as they are still suffering from the trauma of the collapse and grieving for the losses. So it's very hard while many universities have done a good job, I should admit, for hosting Afghans on campus and many resettlement organizations have been working so hard providing Afghan immigrants with like necessary tools and support. I see many of the Afghans are surrounded with uncertain future and lots of and, and a lot to adjust to, like language problem, navigating government bureaucracy, finding a job and getting an education. All are the challenges that Afghans are facing here in their daily lives. 
as still grieving for the loss of the country. So, well, we, well, we as an as an Afghan, I'm I'm grateful for the thousands of Afghans who ha who were rescued over the past year, and then. As an Afghan American, I hope soon the United States can manage to pull out our inside holders, the people who fought with us shoulder to shoulder and now are in trouble. But and and and, and the United States and its NATO allies should continue to ensure a safe passage for human rights activists, judges, women, journalists, and so many others. I imagine that you are in touch with quite a lot of Afghans in the U.S. who have had to rebuild their lives. Do you get the sense from them that they think they might ever go back or that this period now is a, a new era in Afghanistan to which they, can't, they, they could never be part of? Well, man, many of them still are hoping to go back to a liberated motherland someday. Many of them uh, start their days with reading the news and stories about the people, new adversities, just like myself. And many of them are still thinking that someday their country will be free and they will find themselves in their home. And and I should admit, uh, admit as I mean, while not really very quite united and somehow kind of divided across the ethnicity line. I see many Afghans are engaged, especially those women who just came into the country, highly engaged with various means of advocacy, like creating groups and association, calling on a collective action and the world leaders for help. I see them writing narratives, share their stories, and holding panel discussion to attract international attention toward Afghan women tragedy. Um, and I see them like, you know, holding lots of fundraising even and trying to help their suffering communities back home. So they kind of still live in Afghanistan moment by moment and mm. they are grieving and they share the same grief as the people, Afghan people inside the country. And they don't want to like, you know, uh, forget about Afghanistan and they don't want to, uh, forget where they were just a year ago. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about um, the situation inside Afghanistan. So, Because in, in the initial period after the Taliban won, I remember hearing that there was quite a lot of speculation that, you know, they, was, they couldn't govern as they had before the American invasion, before when they governed in the 90s, that urban Afghanistan was now too liberal, that there was this desire for international recognition, which would force them into a more moderate stance on, for example, on women's rights. And of course, even the Taliban made sort of promises to that end. But all of that has faded away. I mean, the, the government has shut women's schools, girls' schools, and they still haven't reopened. And it seems as if they may never reopen. Is it your perspective that that was inevitable from the beginning, that that was always how the Taliban were going to govern? Or do you think maybe there was a, a moment when they could have been convinced, compelled, pushed to a more moderate position? Well, as I said before, I think the best has left women uh, in Afghanistan without any career, without any uh, pre prepared a plan to maintain what they have built I mean working together as a group in Afghanistan they they were the one who led Taliban systematically target women's rights 
and uh, close the uh, school doors and uh, violate every human rights that women should carry as as just as a human being and just i mean as because they exist so and and i think and i think united states and many other countries have already forgotten women so they i i haven't seen them to do something and to, something concretely something like you know tangibly to do to change anything about afghan women whether it's through targeted sanction humanitarian aid political and diplomatic pressure on the taliban the u.s has the obligation to protect and preserve women's rights and gains it's our obligation morally and strategically and i should say we experienced a painful defeat in Afghanistan last summer. And if we don't take concrete action to protect women, we will lose our leading position to advance human rights and freedom in the world. And that would be a huge humiliation in front of our allies and enemies alike. So it's time to take action rather than just delivering a statement. What sort of action are you thinking uh, would work? Because, I mean, the effect of the sanctions has really been felt predominantly by the poorest in the society, not really by the Taliban. I think it's time, I think it's time to, to take action, to take, like, you know, uh, to use every leverage they have uh, over the Taliban and the countries in close contact with the Taliban. And for sure, the West and the United States have those leverage. I mean, the, the, the extent of United States diplom diplomatic influence is, is just much more than what they are doing right now. Delivering some sort of a statement is just not enough and will not change anything in the Taliban. And they have, and there are a lot of means, like, you know, as I said before, there are a lot of, like, you know, a political and diplomatic pressure on the Taliban. There are like they can they can uh, condition their humanitarian aid instead of just some free money providing some free money to the Taliban. They can you know uh, impose like targeted sanction on the Taliban and and just or if nothing more deny or avoid meeting them regularly. I mean. They were invited in so many countries when they did, there was like, you know, a private jet provided for them, sending for them to take them to the West. And that's not how we should face, how we should confront with a group that, that violate women's rights that badly inside the country. You've spoken um, in the past about the links between women activists within the country and those without. And you've paid tribute to the way that the activists have have tried to continue even after the, the takeover of the Taliban. It seems to me that that seems like quite a like a ray of hope, a, a way that, that um, things could get, even if incrementally better. Well, I should say, uh, among all these sorrows and feelings of despair, when I saw hundreds of Afghans, women and men, mainly young, right a day after the collapse, carrying the Afghanistan flag on their shoulder in the street of Kabul and shouting, our flag, our identity, 
I mean, it gave me hope. I, I, I found some very little, a small amount of hope in my heart. And I saw young women like, you know, Crystal Bayot covering herself with the flag. And in the midst of all those hopelessness, still yelling for freedom. And there was a lump in my church and I was, I, I just wanted to solve when I was seeing desperate Afghan having the no power, no weapon, no gun. And all they have is their voice and they still exercise it to claim their rights and protect their country's flag. Are they those whose hopeful messages and success stories were depicted everywhere as a sign of achievement by the best? and now descended into a desperate place? Are those like, you know, the young people that the West was so proud to bring the change in their generation? So, but after, even after that, like, you know, week after week, I was hearing and seeing women take the straight to protest the Taliban misogynistic and discriminatory decrees and claiming their most basic rights. And while, while the protests uh, were not, I mean, the protests were not that popular and only a handful of women were protesting, one could still see a different image of Afghan women and a product of a two decades of hard and tireless work by women. So I, I saw it myself, Taliban and men have pointed weapons at them sprayed them with the pepper spray and called them puppet of the West. And yet the next day they were again in the street and claimed their birth given right. So that's the thing is still going on. And, and, and that's the thing that gives me a little bit of hope that maybe someday these women can really claim their right and then can really preserve the, uh, the gains they have made in the country. I wanted to ask you about something that you sometimes hear. You've heard that a lot in the past year. This is the argument that the the one good thing about the coming of the Taliban is that they have ended the the fighting. And so when we, we interviewed the journalist Anand Gopal, uh, who had actually been in Helmand province, and he had said that the women that he was spoken to were very concerned because the warlords that the US had allied themselves with were just as violent and oppressive towards women as the Taliban themselves. And so at least the Taliban victory meant that the violence had come to an end, the war had come to an end. Do you think that there is anything in that now, you know, now that we have, we're a year into what the reality of Taliban rule is? Well, to whom they ended this war? To whom they ended this fight? Fight has never ended in Afghanistan since they took it over. The Taliban has made it clear that they intend to severely restrict the freedom previously enjoyed by many women and girls and even men. They made it clear that Afghanistan is no longer a home for female educators, judges, journalists, artists, and politicians. And that is, I mean, that is something we have always feared but never thought that would be our reality so and, and and that is something women are in the street and protesting protesting day after after day and with little like you know paper in their hand and that's and that's a reason a lot of men in the in in, in androp in pancher in najrab are fighting and the fight is going on in the country to whom they ended this fight 
I don't see end of the fight in Afghanistan. Women are suffering, children or children are suffering from lack of, from food insecurity. People are fleeing the country groups by groups. And we have, we have lost a lot of capacity that we have built in last 20 years to whom they, they ended this fight. I don't see a positive peace in Afghanistan. There might be lack of blood because those people who would, who would have, who would create insecurity in Afghanistan now are ruling. But do you think there is a positive peace in Afghanistan? The, the, the society of Afghanistan is really peaceful to its citizens. They are fleeing the country. They are suffering from a lack of human rights, from, from, from food insecurity, and from so many other catastrophic situations. And, 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 and going back to the doors of Iran and Pakistan, to whom they have ended this fight? I don't see end of the fight in Afghanistan. Women are fighting, young generation are fighting for their rights. People of Panjshir, Andrab, and Nijrab are fighting so hard and carrying the carrying the pain they have created in the country every day. So I don't see end of any fight in Afghanistan. That was Nazila Jamshidi in New York. The fragile peace that the Taliban have brought, or the crushing of dissent at least, may itself be under threat. Taliban rule may seem solid for now, but that may be temporary. You'll hear next from Chris Sands, our South Asia editor. My colleague Rasha Elas caught up with him to talk about New Lines' groundbreaking investigation into Islamic State Khorasan Province, or ISKP. The report offers an unprecedented view into the inner workings of the group, its battles with both the Americans and the Taliban during the war, and its plans to reignite the fighting once again. Chris, along with Fazal Minallah, whom you heard from earlier, worked on the investigation for years and spoke with sources deep within the organization. So the report is an attempt to tell the story of the Islamic State group in Afghanistan through the life of one of its leaders, a man called Abu Omar Khorasani, who was killed by the Taliban on August the 15th, 2021, the first day that the Taliban took power. And uh, what would you say are some of the major findings of the report so far? Which is a very long report, I must say. Yeah, it's 15,000 words. It's, a, it's an incredibly long report, hopefully uh, rich in detail. But um, what Fazal and I were trying to do with the report was to gain a better understanding of the Islamic State and also the Taliban, and in particular, the individuals within these two groups. One thing that struck me during the, the research and the writing of it was that insurgents or terrorists or extremists, whatever you would like to call them, they are not born that way. They're created, they're a product of their environment and a product of their circumstances. And I think that is something that tends to be lost in a lot of the media coverage of Afghanistan. Um, it was certainly a failing of the media during the war when the Americans were there. And I think it continues to be a failure of the media now. So Fazal and I were trying to figure out really, you know, what drives a man to want to join a group as extreme and as violent as the Islamic State. And I think as a journalist, when I've, when I've been out working in Afghanistan, covering incidents like suicide bombings, for example, 
It's very easy to write the basic details of a suicide attack. You go to the scene, you describe what you see, you interview a few witnesses, you end up writing how many people were killed in your report, and that's it, and you move on. And I think the more I covered those sorts of events, the more I started to try and ask myself bigger questions and perhaps deeper questions about what was driving people to do these things and what was driving the movements behind these attacks. And this essay was really just an attempt to dig deeper and to answer some of those difficult questions. And I think, you know, it's, it's very easy to look at incidents and even conflicts um, in isolation. And I think you actually sometimes need to take a step back and have a broader view of, of what's going on. And there are a lot of seemingly unconnected threads running through the war that actually could be brought together and could be tied together. Um, so it's quite interesting sort of fitting those, some of those pieces together and actually then realizing, you know, you have the big puzzle then, you have the full picture of the jigsaw. Um, so that's what the report was trying to do, I suppose. It was trying to tell the story of the Islamic State, of the Taliban, and I suppose make sense of this war, this war that ground on for 20 years, the longest war in American history, a war that cost tens of thousands of lives, um, mostly Afghan lives, but also American lives, of course, British lives, Australian lives, Canadian lives. You know, in, in many ways, anyone listening to this will have been impacted by the war in Afghanistan. And this report was trying to make sense of that. So in your report, you take a deep dive into the life trajectory of Al-Khurasani, who uh, one could say is the founder of Islamic State in, in Afghanistan? Um, no, so he wasn't the founder. So the Islamic State in Afghanistan emerged in, in 2015, in early 2015. Its first leader was a man named Hafiz Said Khan who was from the Pashtun areas on the Pakistan side of the border. Um, Abu Omar Khorasani joined the group soon after that and basically rose through the ranks. He served as head of education at one point, as effectively as its deputy leader at one point, and then eventually became its leader within Afghanistan. Oh, I'm sorry, is he credited with transforming it in any way? Um, I mean, I think... I think that's a hard thing to pin on him as an individual. Um, what I would say is that his, you know, he he had he, he certainly had a prominent role within the Islamic State, and to state the obvious, unlike a lot of figures within the Islamic State, he actually survived for a comparatively long time within the group. You know, he joined in two thousand and fifteen. He was killed in two thousand and twenty-one. So he was in the he was in the group for you know around about six years. Um, during which time he held senior positions within it. And of course, that was when it was, you know, carrying out attacks across the country and the, the sort of attacks actually that Afghans were not used to seeing, you know, it, it's even in a country that has been at war, not for just 20 years, but actually since 1978, when there was a communist coup in Afghanistan, even for a country that has been at war that long, the attacks of the Islamic State were shocking for Afghans. Um, and I think you know, it, it's, it's important to remember that. And, you know, people do become desensitized to violence to, to an extent, but there is still a level of violence that can shock you. And um, again, in, in some ways that is the horrific, I guess it's a, like a horrific brilliance of the Islamic State, right? They know how to push things to such extremes that they are able to grab the attention of people and to frighten them. And under Khorasani, that's what the Islamic State did in Afghanistan. They're a sort of a, a unique kind of threat to the Taliban in the sense that they're an ideological threat, right? Because um, it's easy for the Taliban 
to portray the British and the Americans as occupiers, as non-Muslims. It's harder to do that. It's harder to do that against the Islamic State. You know, if the Islamic State is saying, we are fighting jihad and we believe that the jihad needs to continue now, you have to find a different way to argue against that. That certainly worries the Taliban. And killing Abu Omar Khorasani was a way for them to try and deal with that problem. But I think they are finding that you know, it's, a, it's a problem that is not just confined to one man. The Islamic State has, has a, a small but significant support base within Afghanistan you know, that is certainly capable of causing problems for the Taliban government, as we have seen, you know, in the last year when there have been attacks in, in Kabul um, against, often against soft targets, invariably on civilians. But it's clear what the Islamic State is trying to do. They are trying to show that the Taliban are unable to keep security in Afghanistan. Um, and the Taliban as a movement has always been about trying to promote itself as the one force in Afghanistan that can keep Afghans secure. So if it's seen not to be able to do that, that's very embarrassing for the Taliban. And again, the Taliban are acutely aware of that. So in your deep dive into the trajectory of his life, what have you learned, would you say, about the making of someone who joins the Islamists? That's the big question. You know, what drives someone to join a movement like the Islamic State? I think in in Khorasani's case, it's particularly interesting. He grew up in eastern Afghanistan um, in a province called Kuna on the border with Pakistan. He was educated first in Kuna and then he moved to Pakistan um, to study higher education. There were no signs of radicalism at that point. He wasn't involved in Islamic militancy. He then returned to Afghanistan sort of in the early years of the American occupation and again lived a peaceful ordinary life in, in Kunar, worked as a teacher, worked for an international NGO. And then something in him seemed to change in around about 2015. No one in his family seems to be quite sure of what that was, whether he was recruited by individuals outside Afghanistan, whether he was radicalized by elements within the Taliban and then joined the Islamic State. No one is quite sure. Um, but it's clear, as I said earlier, he wasn't born an extremist. He wasn't born to be the leader of, you know, one of the most violent terrorist groups in the world. He was born as a ordinary young man in an ordinary Afghan family. So, you know, I think what, what drives a man to join a, a group like the Islamic State is something journalists and, and researchers are, are still trying to understand. And I think there's probably a, a range of factors. I think in the end, it's probably social and psychological. People who knew him, who don't agree with what he did with his life, still don't describe him as evil. You know, they do not describe him as insane. Um, you know, they think that he made his choices rationally. You know, it was essentially, I think there's a line in the story, it was misplaced idealism that, that, that drove him to become leader of the Islamic State. And that makes the problem particularly difficult to deal with. You know, having sort of read the news coverage of recent days about Ayman al-Zawahiri and, and, and his death, I do think a lot of it misses the point. You know, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of talk that this drone strike shows how, for example, American counterinsurgency strategy has changed over the last 20 years. And I think there is some truth to that. It, it does show that. But I don't think any of this really addresses the root causes of these problems. You know, I don't think you can divorce counterinsurgency strategy from political reality, for example. And 
to, to broaden it out beyond Afghanistan, you know, the political reality at the moment is still that the United States is supporting authoritarian regimes throughout the Middle East, authoritarian regimes who put people in prison and torture them and undoubtedly fuel radicalism. And I think, you know, these sorts of big questions we're asking now, you know, what drives someone to join Islamic State? They need to be addressed socially. They need to be addressed culturally and politically, not just militarily. And I, I'm not sure that the United States has learned that lesson yet. Would you say that moving forward, the Islamic State in Afghanistan is primed to, uh, for, for a resurgency to come back into the headlines, so to speak? I mean, I think it will try. I think it will certainly try um, primarily through, again, through high profile attacks in, in cities in Afghanistan, because that's an easy way to grab attention. But I think it will find it difficult. I don't think there's an appetite among most Afghans for the Islamic State. But I think it's something the international community needs to be very aware of when it is isolating the Taliban government. I still do not see a viable alternative to the Taliban. And I think the danger is if you continue to isolate the Taliban and you try and drive a wedge between the Taliban and the Afghan people and you weaken the Taliban state, the chief beneficiaries of that will be the Islamic State. So as much as the West in particular might not want to deal with the Taliban government right now, it has to be aware of the fact that there are far, far worse alternatives uh, from its point of view. So I think that's the only way that the Islamic State can become a truly significant force in Afghanistan. If the Taliban are weakened to, to such an extent that a security vacuum is created and then the Islamic State can step into that vacuum. Chris Sands there speaking to Rasha Elaz. Few expected the past year to be so eventful. The Taliban takeover, once a major global story, has now been sidelined by the war in Ukraine. But as our guests today have pointed out, this new chapter in Afghanistan's history is one of its most complex and challenging yet, with those challenges being felt most acutely by the poorest in Afghan society. Thank you to all our guests. You can find Fazal Minallah Qazizai on Twitter at Fazal Qazizai. Nazila Jamshidi at Nazila Jamshidi 1 and Chris Sands at Chris Sands Kabul. You can also read Fazal Minallah and Chris's investigation into ISKP, Faith and Vengeance, the Islamic State's War in Afghanistan on newlinesmag.com. This has been The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by Rasha Elas and me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com.